darkness, and that will continue to grow today. We are in the middle, or we've entered into the season of Lent where we are confessing and, and looking at the things that are happening in the world around us, but also in our own lives. And just by a show of hands, how many of you love the idea of confession? That's what I thought. Uh, Confession is not something that comes easy to us. It's not something we like to talk about. Uh, looking through the hymnal and also looking through uh, praise songs, there's not a lot of songs about confession. It's not something we like to think a lot about. Uh, confession, maybe especially in Protestant circles, um, is not something we like to talk about. We know that it shouldn't be like going to a priest in a little alcove or, or, or um, booth and, and just confessing your stuff to that one man, that it's, we can come to one another. But often we just kind of jettison the whole idea of confession, of speaking what's going on in our lives to brothers and sisters and also hearing their confessions and knowing that we are not alone. We don't like to admit when we've screwed up and done something wrong. And even in the church, we don't really like this word sin. Maybe we'll use it, especially about someone else. But we don't like to think of sin in our own lives. We don't like to let other people really take a look at what's going on in our lives. Uh, in the book Celebration of Discipline, which... Uh, is also an oxymoron for many of us celebrating discipline. Uh, Richard Foster says, Confession is a difficult discipline for us because we all too often view the believing community as a fellowship of saints before we see it as a fellowship of sinners. We feel that everyone else has advanced so far into holiness that we are isolated and alone in our sin. We cannot bear to reveal our failures and shortcomings to others. We imagine that we are the only ones who have not stepped onto the high road of heaven. Therefore, we hide ourselves from one another and live in veiled lies and hypocrisy. We think we're the only ones struggling. And we don't stop to confess what's going on to each other and to become aware that we're not the only ones going through the situation. He goes on to say, but if we know that the people of God are first a fellowship of sinners... We are freed to hear the unconditional call of God's love and to confess our needs openly before our brothers and sisters. We know that we are not alone in our sin. The, pride, the fear and pride that cling to us like barnacles cling to others also. We are sinners together. In acts of mutual confession, we release the power that heals. Our humanity is no longer denied or transformed. We're in this season of confession. It's okay to admit that we don't have it all together. And that's really what this Lenten season is about. So this morning we will continue in that attitude of confession. As we come to the rest of our message this morning, would you pray with me? Jesus, confession is a hard thing for us to talk about. And confessing our unbelief is an even harder thing to talk about. But 
words of my mouth, the meditations uh, of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we confessed our role that we all play in perpetuating injustice in our world. And this morning we're going to be talking about unbelief. We often want to point the finger at other people who don't believe in Jesus. And we say, look at this whole world is, they don't have any faith in God. They don't have any faith in Jesus. But this morning, I want to remind us that when you point one finger, there's three fingers pointing back at yourself. And we're going to look at our own unbelief this morning. What does it mean to confess our own unbelief? Our scripture this morning was taken from Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or your tablets or whatever you're looking at scripture on, Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. That's what was read for us this morning. And in this story, Jesus comes on scene and he sees this hubbub going on and he kind of wonders what's all the ruckus, what's going on, what's causing this scene. A father has brought his son who is demon-possessed. And the disciples aren't able to help the father by themselves. Jesus says, you faithless generation. You just doesn't get it. You just doesn't believe. Jesus comes and he analyzes the situation. He asks, how long has he been like this? And the father says, he's been like this from birth. This demon has, has plagued him, has tried to throw him in the fire, throw him in, into water, tried to, to kill him in, in numerous ways. The father comes and is begging and pleading for help, for relief. Jesus then asks some questions about the man's faith. He says, all things can be done for the one who believes. It's like Jesus is asking me, how much faith do you really have? Do you really believe that I can do anything about this situation? Or are you just coming and... I love the man's response. He says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. He's, he's desperate. He seems to recognize that Jesus is the right person to be with. And he seems to have some kind of trust that Jesus can do something about the situation, but he's open and honest about where he's at. He doesn't come to, to Jesus and, and just kind of try and pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He says, I believe, but honestly, there's still a part of me that isn't sure. I, I want to believe, but... But Jesus, you have to understand, he's been like this for a long time, and, and we've tried praying, and I believe you can do something, but I'm just not sure. He has this profound confession, I believe, but I still have this lack of belief in my life. Jesus hears the honesty. He hears the Father crying for his son, and he heals the son. 
Then Jesus enters into some follow-up debriefing with his disciples. And this is a little bit expanded and imaginative, but I imagine there's more to the debriefing that happened than what we just have in Scripture. The disciples there in the text say, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demons? I imagine Jesus said, did you believe and have faith? And the the disciples probably said, well, to be honest, we really weren't sure. We saw what was going on. We saw him foaming at the mouth, and uh, we figured we'd give it a whirl, but we really weren't sure what was going to happen. Jesus says, did you pray? Did we pray? We tried the holy water thing. We tried speaking some gibberish in Latin. That's what they do in the movies when they got to cast out a demon. And we tried smacking him in the head, and that didn't help anything. Did you pray? Did we pray? Well, Jesus, we, we surrounded him. We, we tried. We, we demanded the Holy Spirit come out. We started sweating. We were going through all kinds of stuff. Did you pray? Did we pray? No, we didn't. We didn't really try that. Jesus says that kind only comes out through praying. Putting your trust Turning it over to God. The scripture that we that Michelle read earlier in our uh, confession is from John chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. This uh, text is a little bit different than the, the text in Mark. In, in Mark, uh, they're asking and pleading for Jesus to, to do a miracle. And Jesus isn't really sure whether they have the faith to believe that he can do something about this situation, to perform a miracle. But what's happening in John is Jesus has been doing miracles. He has been performing signs, and in spite of all those signs, the people still don't believe. And and I think these two examples are examples in my own life. Sometimes, man, I want the miracle. Jesus, just do something drastic in this situation and other times he does the miracle and I go Jesus can you do something about this or I explain it away I'm on these two different sides Isaiah had prophesied about the hardness of the human heart and a failure to understand or to accept Jesus as the Messiah. So what do I mean about confessing our unbelief? Well, I want you to hear something before we talk about what is unbelief. One thing that unbelief is not is having some questions or wrestling with a little bit of doubt. That's not what I mean by unbelief. There's all kinds of people in Scripture who are wrestling with questions for God, tough questions, and even places of doubt. The father in the scripture from Mark says, I believe, but there's still a part of me that's struggling. Doubting Thomas gets his nickname because he has doubts and questions about Jesus really coming to life. It's, Thomas is just asking the question that we would all ask. Dead people don't come back to life. Thomas has some doubts that that has happened. Thomas also has a profound expression of faith when he declares Jesus, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, as my Lord and my God. 
Abraham had questions about God's promises. The story of Job is a whole philosophical discussion about the problem of evil and why bad things happen to good people. And Job has some very serious questions for God. David has questions. Other heroes of the faith have questions, struggle with doubt. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane even says, Father, if it's possible for this to happen any other way, please let this cup pass from me. Don't make me go through this. Not my will, but your will be done. Even Jesus has some questions. So unbelief, I don't think, is is having questions or wrestling with doubts. In some ways, those are how we grow in our faith, by being willing to come to God and say, God, I've got some questions. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Now, I think unbelief shows up when we stop trusting God altogether and we start to trust in something else in place of God. So what do we trust or believe in other than Jesus? All kinds of things. Let me just name a couple. We put our trust in jobs to provide all we need. And and jobs can be a way that God provides for us. That can be the miracle or or the daily bread that God is providing for us. But when we start to put that, that job in front of trusting God, then we've got our uh, priorities out of order. We've stopped really trusting in God. Church growth models. You know, a number of churches, a number of uh, Christians across America trust having some great program or some great production on Sunday morning, and that's going to draw people in, and that seems to me like it's trusting a process, trusting a method, rather than turning and, and trusting that Jesus is at work, whether we have a great production or we don't have a great production. I had a friend uh, who was part of a church that went to um, a Christian college uh, church fair at they did this at Malone where it was like the first week of school. A whole bunch of local churches showed up and had tables and booths and had all kinds of information that if you wanted to come and join their church on Sunday, they were letting their college students know about it. And uh, this friend was at uh, a Christian college and there were all these churches with their booths set up and students were coming around and they were asking him, what's your production value? What's your production value? I, what's your core values? What do you believe? That's the questions that I would want to hear. What were your production values? They said, well, we got a guy that sits on a stool with a guitar, and we have an overhead projector and a laptop plugged in. There, There's not a lot of lights. There's not a lot of smoke. There's not a lot of production value. For some, that really connected. What else do we trust other than Jesus? We trust political power. In 2016, the Sunday after the election, I don't know what it was like here, but I know in a lot of churches, that was a hard Sunday. It was amazing to me to see people come into churches 
some just jubilant and joyful about the way the election had gone and and courts are going to get fixed and all this stuff and others coming in just in tears because their vision of America hadn't happened. Can I suggest that both of those are messed up? We saw a broken church putting belief in the wrong places. Hear me. Vote if or as your conscience directs. But every four years, Jesus' lordship, Jesus as king over everything is not up for your vote. You don't get a say. Don't put too much hope in political power doesn't mean we can't be passionate about what we believe is best for America. Confessing our unbelief means that sometimes we have put an unhealthy amount of stock or trust in systems or people other than Jesus. We know our unbelief filters out to others. I think people outside the church sometimes ask hard questions of those of us inside the church. When they see us professing one thing, saying we follow Jesus as the Prince of Peace, and, and we don't live it out. Gandhi famously asked the question, he said, I love your Jesus, why are your Christians so unlike your Jesus? Because he saw that the way they were living didn't seem to match up. So sometimes our unbelief, the world goes, well, it's not making a difference. doesn't seem to be making a difference in your life. Why do you think it's going to make a difference in my life? Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. There is good news of Jesus. The early church proclaimed it and they lived it out. They believed that somehow Jesus coming as the promised Messiah, living and dying on the cross, being resurrected and ascending, had radically changed everything. They believed that it had implications for individual lives, that it changed the whole way we see sin and in our relationship with God, but they believed that it was also transforming institutions. It changed the way the, the church interacted with uh, political powers in Rome. It changed the way they interacted with economic uh, markets. It changed the way they lived life. They proclaimed the kingdom of God and they believed that the good news of the kingdom changed lives, institutions, circumstances, and more. They proclaimed and declared the story of Jesus. And so I have to look at my own life sometimes and wonder, when did I stop trusting that the gospel had radically altered lives and the whole creation? This morning in your bulletin, you have your black strip of paper. I want you to think about this question. 
What situation or area of your life are you struggling to believe that Jesus is still Lord over? We all have some way where we've tried to take back control from Jesus. Maybe it's because we just don't believe that Jesus cares anything about that area of our life. Or maybe we have stopped believing that he can impact that situation, that relationship. I just want to give you a few moments here to write down, what are the, what's the area of your life are you struggling to believe that Jesus is still Lord over? Again, as you leave this morning, you can bring your uh, confession here to the cross or drop it off on the table in the the back of the sanctuary. As we confess and, and admit that we just don't have it all together. And sometimes in different places in our life, we have stopped trusting Jesus to be Lord and King and Savior. morning as we close our service, I invite you to rise and body your spirit and turn in your brown hymnal to number 581, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.